Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of It's Crime Time. In this episode, we will be discussing the serial killer Robert Berdella. He was known as the Kansas City Butcher and the collector for his crimes committed against young boys in the 1980s. He raped, tortured, and killed at least six known victims. Although he was a well-known serial killer, I hadn't really learned a whole lot about his case before, so I decided to do some more research. All right, everyone. It's crime time. This episode of It's Crime Time is brought to you by Anchor. If you like this podcast and would like to create your own, let me tell you about Anchor by Spotify. Anchor is completely free and has all the creation tools you'll need to record, edit, and distribute your podcast. You can record and edit directly from your computer or phone using the app and let Anchor automatically distribute to the most popular platforms without having any fancy setup. Did I mention they even have video podcasting on Spotify now? And you can earn money through ads and pod subscriptions. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm to get started and share your creation with the world. Before I start this episode, I would like to just warn you and say that a lot of the details in this episode are very graphic and detailed. And a lot of them are really hard to listen to. Listener discretion is advised. Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. was born on January 31, 1949, in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. His parents were Robert Andrew Berdella Sr. and Mary Berdella. His father was a die setter for the Ford Motor Company, and his mother was a stay-at-home mom or homemaker. He also had a younger brother named Daniel, who was seven years his junior. Robert's family was very religious and attended church regularly, with Robert dropping out of church attendance in his teenage years. Robert was myopic, meaning that he had very bad nearsightedness and had to wear very thick glasses from the time he was just five years old. This caused him to be bullied in school. He also suffered from a speech impediment and even high blood pressure from a young age. His teachers often found him to be a difficult student to teach, yet he was a good student. He was often a loner that had no social life, which I would probably attribute most likely to the fact that he was bullied and he was just afraid to make friends. His father was physically and emotionally abusive to he and Daniel and often compared Robert to Daniel as he was uninterested in sports and other activities considered to be manly and Robert wasn't very athletic. When Robert reached puberty, he realized he was homosexual, but he did not come out for a few years. Upon reaching his mid-teens, he became very self-confident, arrogant even, and he had a bad attitude, mostly toward women. He often credited himself as being good at cooking, art, and showmanship. 
On Christmas Day in 1965, Robert's father passed away from a heart attack while they were visiting relatives in Canton, Ohio, and his mother soon remarried. Robert became angry at his mother for this and often spent even more time alone, engaging in activities such as painting, collecting stamps and coins, and writing to various pen pals. He had excellent grades in high school and in 1966 was placed in an independent study program, which allowed him to pass out of Cuyahoga Falls High School in 1967. During his time in Cuyahoga Falls, he was allegedly raped by a man that worked with him at a restaurant. He enrolled at Kansas City Art Institute wanting to become a teacher, but ultimately became a chef instead. While he was in art school, it was said that he was involved in animal torture on three occasions and was then expelled from the art school in 1969 for killing a dog during an art experiment. He later became an alcoholic and a drug dealer and was arrested for drug possession, but later released because of their lack of evidence. After this, he became a full-time chef, becoming a successful and responsible member of society. He aided in establishing a training program for aspiring chefs in Kansas City, joined the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, and he became the chairman of this association in the early 1980s. At this period in his life, he was comfortable with his sexuality and entered into a relationship with a Vietnam veteran, but it was a short relationship. He became friends with male prostitutes and drug addicts, attempting to help them turn their lives around. He attempted to help the male prostitutes get out of prostitution, supposedly, and help the drug addicts stop their drug addictions. He became frustrated with them, and he would attempt to control their lives. He loaned them money, he would give them a free place to live at his home, and he would even engage in sexual relationships with these men. Robert eventually gave up his job as a chef, opening a store known as Bob's Bazaar Bazaar at a flea market known as the Westport Flea Market. At this small store, he sold antiques, jewelry, and primitive art. It was said he even sold human skulls and occult books here. Now, he didn't sell any of his victim skulls here, so I'm not exactly sure where he found these human skulls to sell or if they were even real. He did not make much profit at his store, often having to steal or scavenge for items to sell at the store. He also began taking in people to live in his Charlotte Street home and charge them rent to make an extra income. While working at the bazaar, Robert met his first victim, Jerry Howell. Jerry Howell was the son of a patron running a shop in the Westport Flea Market near Roberts, Paul Howell. Jerry Howell disappeared on July 5th, 1984 when Robert offered him a ride to a dance competition. Robert gave Jerry alcohol and a combination of Valium, and um, Valium, Valium is a benzodiazepine often used to treat anxiety, and acepromazine, which is a phenothiazine tranquilizer, and they actually used that prior to anesthesia. It has sedative effects to kind of calm the person down and to prevent vomiting. No one had any information on where Jerry went at this time, but some believe Robert was responsible because Jerry had been associating with him. 
Jerry Howell was kept at Robert's home for weeks, being given tranquilizers, bound, gagged, and repeatedly sodomized. Eventually, Robert tied him upside down in his basement, cutting large slits into his body to drain him of his blood. Jerry ultimately died of asphyxiation. Now, I found in some articles that claimed Jerry actually died from asphyxiation in um, Robert's bed when he was tied up to his bed. He died from a combination of the gag, his own vomit, and drugs. And then other sources stated that he actually died from being tied upside down in the basement. He was dismembered with a bone saw and his remains were sent with the trash pickup. Robert did not find another victim until almost a year later on April 10th, 1985. This victim was Robert Sheldon. He was a 23-year-old drifter that Robert attempted to help. He showed up on Robert's doorstep begging him for a place to live. He was also drugged and tortured. Robert was not attracted to Sheldon, so instead of raping him, he experimented on him with chemicals and various methods of torture. He tied Sheldon's wrists with piano wire hoping to permanently damage the nerves in his wrists, put drain cleaner in his eyes, filled his ears with caulk, and put needles under his fingernails. Finally, he was strangled and dismembered in a bathtub and his body parts were sent out in a weekly trash pickup, just like the other victim. I found an article that said that he actually killed him quickly, like he wasn't finished with him, but he had to kill him because some people, I'm not sure if it was workers that were going to fix his home or something, but they were actually to come to his home and he didn't want them to see that he had a guy tied up there, so he killed him quickly. Also in 1985, Robert met Mark Wallace, who was helping him do some yard work. Mark Wallace was not the typical person Robert would hang out with, as he was not a drug addict or male prostitute. When Mark was doing yard work for Robert and a storm began, Robert invited Mark into his home after he sought shelter in Robert's tool shed. He drugged Mark, tortured him by shocking him with high voltage electricity and sticking hypodermic needles into his back. Mark eventually died and was dismembered and disposed of just as the others had been. Just a month after Mark's murder, one of Robert's acquaintances asked to stay at his home. This man's name was Walter James Ferris. Robert agreed, and when Walter arrived at his home, Robert tied him to the bed, subjecting him to shocks of 7,700 volts for two days, even shocking his genitals. Walter eventually died and was disposed of in the same way as the others. In 1986, Robert ran into a former male prostitute he knew, Todd Stoops, and invited him to his home to get some lunch. Robert drugged Todd and kept him trapped in his home for weeks, subjecting him to extreme torture to attempt to turn him into a submissive sex slave. He electrically shocked Todd's eyes, injected drain cleaner into his larynx, his voice box, to try to make him a mute, and repeatedly raped and sexually assaulted him. Todd eventually died of blood loss when Robert ruptured his anus with his fist. In 1987, he ran across 20-year-old acquaintance Larry Pearson and bailed him out of prison. 
He met Larry at his shop and decided he wanted to kill him when Larry made a joke about robbing gay men in Wichita. He drugged Larry first and proceeded to torture him in the same way as he tortured the others, by binding them, electrocuting them, injecting drain cleaner into them, and even broke one of Larry's hands with a metal bar. He kept him in captivity for six weeks, and according to medical records, Robert actually had to frequently visit the hospital to get the tip of his penis reattached when Larry would bite it off when forced into fellatio. Robert eventually tired of this and suffocated Larry with a plastic bag, disposed of his remains, and buried his head in his yard. Almost a year later, on March 29, 1988, Robert picked up a 22-year-old male prostitute, Chris Bryson. He knocked Chris unconscious with a metal bar and kept Chris drugged and tortured for five days while sexually assaulting him. Chris gained Robert's trust and convinced him to give him a cigarette and to tie his hands in front of him rather than behind him. While Robert was at work, Chris grabbed the box of matches that Robert left in the home when he gave him the cigarette and he burned through his ropes. He jumped from Robert's two-story home in Hyde Park, completely nude wearing only a dog collar. I found an article that stated that Chris explained that he looked down and realized how high of a jump that it would have been, but at this point he didn't care because that was his only way out. He only sustained a small injury to his foot at the time, but he didn't care. He ran to a man working across the street, a meter man. I also found another article I'd like to mention. One said it was a meter man, and a couple of other articles stated that he actually ran across the street to one of Robert's neighbors. The neighbor was scared, obviously, because the guy was naked. He had been, you know, tortured and he had a dog collar on, so the neighbor wouldn't let him in. But the neighbor did notify the authorities. So either the meter man notified them or the neighbor notified them, but the authorities were notified whenever this man jumped out the window. Detectives eventually picked up Robert and initiated a search of his home. Police discovered over 200 Polaroid photographs of men he had tortured and sexually assaulted. Now, I won't post any of these photos anywhere on my Instagram or anything. They're pretty graphic, which I'm sure most of you can handle, but you can definitely look them up and they can be found on Google. Now, not all of them, but one of his main victims that he took, and they are pretty bad. They also seized his torture devices and chemicals that could be purchased legally at veterinarian shops. That weekend, they also found two human skulls, a satanic ritual robe, strange occult books, and they dug up another skull in his yard. Bone fragments were also unearthed as well, and they found his journals detailing all of his crimes against his victims. So every time he committed one of these crimes, he would write down how he sexually assaulted them, he would write down his torture methods, what chemicals he used, just everything, the voltages he used, and he would obviously write them down. It's kind of like a science experiment almost, like what worked and what didn't work. He would write the results down and everything. So it was pretty crazy because they technically found his confession all right in his journals. On April 4th, 1988, Robert was arraigned on seven counts of sodomy, one count of felonious restraint, and one count of first-degree assault due to his crimes against Chris Bryson. 
His bail at this time was set to $500,000, but his bail was revoked the next day due to findings at his home when an officer testified that one of the men in the photographs, being most likely Jerry Howell, was hanging by his feet, appearing to be dead. Homicide investigators then began to review their missing persons cases from 1984 to 1988. Robert bargained with police and he pled guilty, receiving a life sentence, being charged with the murder of at least one victim at this time, but being linked to possibly seven others. Later, on December 19, 1988, Robert pled guilty to the murder of Robert Sheldon and to four to five counts of second-degree murder involving his other victims. He was sentenced to two life sentences in prison. He gave full confessions to avoid the death penalty, which the victims' families were angry about. But he died anyway, four years later of a heart attack on October 8, 1992, in prison at the age of 43. And I... I believe this is obviously due to the fact that he had suffered from high blood pressure since he was little, as I mentioned earlier. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode of It's Crime Time. If you enjoyed, please leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Also, you can check me out on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at It's Crime Time Pod as well as looking me up on Facebook at It's Crime Time Podcasts.